I know a place where you belong. Come follow me and join the song. Welcome to Broadway Con! The podcast, a show for the theater kid in all of us. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. Before we get into the episode, I should point out that tickets for BroadwayCon 2017, produced by Mischief Management and Playbill, are now on sale. You can get information and tickets at broadwaycon.com. So, you guys, today I have the absolute pleasure of sharing with you our interviews with two of my most favorite theater ladies. First up, Carmen Cusack. I mean, I am a real-life, legit Carmen Cusack superfan. As in, she is such a big star to me that I am so tongue-tied and flustered around her that I can hardly form complete sentences. As many of you know, Carmen made what I like to call a startlingly brilliant Broadway debut this past season in her Tony-nominated turn as Alice Murphy in Bright Star. In this interview, we aim to find out where she's been up till now, and we also go back to her childhood and find out who her inspirations were, and when and how she decided to make theater her life's work. In the second half of the show, we sit down with theater historian and author Jennifer Ashley Tepper, who, for the record, might be the cheeriest and most adorable human I've ever met. Oh, also, Norbert Leo Butts comes up a ton in this episode, because everyone in the world, including me, is obsessed with him. Okay, here we go. Zach, welcome to BroadwayCon the podcast. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? <laughs> I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. My head has not blown <laughs> off my shoulders. I, I don't know how I'm. I don't know how I'm still. I, I don't know how any of this is even still happening. I don't think any of this is real. I don't think it is. <laughs> so I want to. I want to ask you. So what, the the stuff that we like to talk about on this podcast, we like to learn about you as like. In your formative years, like how, what kind of kid were you? What kind of theater kid were you? Like when did when did theater become important to you? Theater became important to me when, um, well, my mom had me when she was really, really young. So I ended up in my grandparents' hands for um, a few years. Although she was there, she was uh, studying at college, she was getting an education, and she was working, so I didn't see a lot of her. My grandparents um, <clears throat> started to parent me, and we lived out in this um, in the woods, basically, of this place called Fountain, Florida, which is about 30 minutes outside of Panama City. It's on the panhandle of Florida. And it's I just lived out in the woods in five acres of land and didn't have wow. playmates or anything. I just had a, my dog, Nikki, and me on five acres of land for on the days were long. And that my theater started in my head. And I just continued to just build stories and pretend by myself in my head and sometimes for grandma um that's that's where it started and singing i just used to sing to entertain myself and and i pretend to be on the rainy days and i would have to be stuck in the house i'd pretend to be a waitress and go around set up all my stuffed animals and go around you just you just kids do that don't they and i never stopped pretending in my head were you ever actually a waitress Hell yes. Were you? Of course. I was a singing waitress at the Italian Inn in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, I knew that. I did know that. Yep. Um, wh- when did you start to get to actually like experience theater, be it through like um, cast recordings or seeing stuff on TV or actual theater? Like, When did you actually get to start to experience it? Um, 
My first experience of, of musical theater was watching an old, an old uh, watching one of, I think it might have been TCM or maybe it was not TCM at the time, it was, but just a classic channel, and Calamity Jane came on. Congratulations, Calamity. Fellas, nobody else on earth could have done it but Calam. Uh, I'll bet if she went after sitting Bull, she'd bring him back, too. Did you see the show? Did you see Miss Adam work, huh? What's it like in the big city? Boys, Chicago's the biggest noise in Illinois. Listen. Wow. And I just wanted to be Doris Day. I just thought every time you look at her face, it looked like sunshine to me. And I would never be Doris Day because I am not that blonde, <laughs> blue-eyed, cute little button-up, turned-up nose. That I'm everything opposite of that. But I just thought, I want to be her someday. And, of course, that's unrealistic. But that's what got me. She inspired me. And, and just she, she took me away from... You know, some of the dark, just the darkness of being a, a kid alone and shy and and kind of always new to a town. You know, I would, did so much moving around that she just took me, she 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 took me away from reality and just opened up this, this wonderful kind of door that, oh, I could do that. Maybe I could do that if somebody hired, you know, me. On the street was a dancing feller all dressed up in a suit. Just looked like she was having a lot of fun, and, and still to this day, I want to play Calamity Jane. I probably have passed that. that I missed that that ship, but anyway. When did you like learn about Broadway? Like, when did you like? When did it become? When did you like learn that it was even there? I don't know what age it was. I guess it was just you know watching the Tony Awards oh, at yeah. some point. Maybe when I was about nine or ten I started to realize that there really was a community where that can happen on stage and yeah yeah and 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 then when did you get to see like your first professional theater god that's a really good question when was my first professional I would have to say this is gonna freak you out but my <laughs> first show was to watch Phantom of the Opera really I think so why would that freak you out <laughs> I don't know why that would because I didn't you know we didn't see theater growing up we yeah. didn't get to go to shows uh, so what was that here in New York no it was in London and it was, it was because then? I auditioned for it and they and I, I went to a cattle call. I didn't have an agent or anything. And I went to a cattle call just where we lined out up outside till till you know the till five o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, I showed up and sang. I guess it was "Think of Me" and something else. I think I sang "Summertime." Um, and they kind of wanted to know where that where I you know who I was, what I was about. Did I have an equity card? <laughs> All that stuff. And of course, I didn't. But uh, they wanted to hand me a contract, but they wanted me to see the show. So I got to see the show for free. That is the most amazing London, seeing a, a show for the first time story ever. Well, how old were you when that happened? Like, you must have been in, like, your teens or? Yeah, no, no. I, I know this is terrible to say. No, this not first, at My all. first theatrical experience was when I was 20. That's incredible. So what made you <laughs> Professional then? Professional theatrical. Yeah. Like, proper professional what made you want to pursue that that track I, I mean, know well I'd always wanted to it's just um a matter of when I was gonna be able to go you know to be in that place to be in in around these kind of people yeah and then you booked it and then I booked it and you was it your first audition it was <laughs> well no I don't know I can't I, I go back a little bit I did a summer stock in for in Fort Worth Texas at a place called Casa Manana uh-huh so that was but summer stock isn't like West End, you right? Know. It, Summerstock was like my first first experience, professional experience, um, and I did like three shows that that season for summer um, on the town, Kiss Me Kate and Can Can. 
so would you say you came of age like in the theater in London when you started? Well, uh, no, my I was singing for uh, congregations at church at five years old. Ah, I'd been singing like in front of a lot, and and we went to big churches, you know. So I was singing for a lot of people at a really young age. Yeah, and then and you ended up staying in the West End for like fifteen years. Yeah, fourteen years. Yeah, fourteen years, and you got to do some of like the great roles over there. Mm-hmm. You were Fontaine. Mm-hmm. What else? What what were the other? What was the other work that you did in the West End? I did Rose in the Secret Garden. Mm-hmm. And um, I did what was that? Friends Personals that uh, that opened in the West End. I did that. Um, I also did this cool, really cool show called Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens, <laughs> and I played a role called Chesty Prospects. Yes. She was a lesbian biker chick, and then she dies. She gets murdered, and then she's reincarnated into a lesbian trucker. Wow. I play really good lesbian Why characters. Isn't that done I'm more? telling you, I know, right? It's, it was so much fun. So as you as you are developing like your professional career, mm-hmm. one of the things I were always curious about is like who did you have people that you were just like dying to work with or like people that you would just sort of like fangirl out over? Eva you, Cassidy. Yeah. Of course she'd already died when I when we right. when we recognized her her abilities. But then I got to play over uh, a show called Over the Rainbow that that tells her story. Oh wow. And I got to basically sing her, both of her albums Songbird and Blues Alley. Uh, 35 songs a night a show. Oh my god. Singing like like that. So yeah, we clearly had to edit edit it down to not that many songs after a while because we were also traveling, you know, um, packing up the uh, the set and putting it into a van and traveling to the next venue. I mean, god. And then when did you make your way back to the US? Uh, I I took a year out of uh, theater and just decided I want to be I wanted to be a jazz singer. And I wanted to uh, sing in these particular venues, these jazz venues that were, um, you know, that are still big in in London. Rocky, Ronnie Scott's and Pizza Express and all these really cool venues. And and I I remember very specifically the day that I decided it was going to happen. And it was on New Year's Eve. And my my mates and I were all at a pub and we were going around the table. What's it's such a dorky thing to do. What's your New Year's resolution? <laughs> and uh, and that got to me, and I said, I'm going to take a year. I, I don't know how long, but I, I want to, to be a jazz singer now. Unless something interesting and really new and really exciting comes along in musical theater, I want a break from it, and I just want to do something different. Because what I had started doing after my... Um, after my fontining, I would literally, at the end of the night, at the end of Les Mis, the, uh, not the run, but the, at the end of the night, I would run across the street every Thursday night to this place called Café de Paris in Leicester Square and sing with a band and do all like Dusty Springfield numbers and jazz and, and wow. 60s stuff. Uh, and yeah, so that just kind of opened up a whole other spectrum of, of what I thought, you know, what I wanted to do in music. So I did. I took and, and literally, as I said it, I said I want to take some time out and and do all the jazz venues and find a jazz band and just be a jazz singer. Literally, within the hour of saying that, my phone, my cell rang, and um, I it was called, a guy called Leo Green who I'd not worked with called me up called me up and said, "Hi Carmen, I hear that you do this, 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 and this in your repertoire. Can you what what are you doing tonight?" And I said, "Well, it's." New Year's Eve, um, just <laughs> hanging out with my maids and getting, getting pissed, drunk. Um, he says, uh, can you please come down before you get too pissed? Come down and help us out because our, leading, our lead singer just decided not to show for our gig and it's New Year's Eve gig, so it's big. I was like, okay, I'll show up. And I did the gig 
and he offered me the reg a regular you know the this the job on the spot and they 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 did and for the rest of the year we did all the venues that I wanted to to do are you kidding I, I literally within it, I, sometimes if you just say it it happens yeah and, and that particular night it happened happened very fast If I remember correctly, you came back to the States to do Wicked. That's right. right. And so getting to that, sorry, you asked that question. Oh, no, please. And so after a year of doing jazz, I decided, okay, now I want to make some more money. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to pay my bills again. <laughs> and uh, and the opportunity, and Wicked was coming around at that point. And I thought, no, this is interesting. There's something there chat that's vocally challenging and not, cha- yeah, yes, vocally challenging. And also there's, there's you know, there was a lot of hype over it. And to be a witch I love that idea yeah. to be green. I love that idea totally. until you actually have to be painted green and have to wash it <laughs> off every times a week. But yeah, it just all sounded really exciting to me. So I auditioned for it. And uh, during the audition process, which was a long audition process, mm-hmm. let's just say that, um, I had let, I, they had gotten the, the casting team there. My agents had, had filled them in on the fact that I wanted to get back to the, to America somehow. And if this could be an opportunity you know, if it didn't work out here in London, if there was another opportunity to um, go to America, I would be really cool with that. And sure enough, they said, yeah, we do have a, a spot available in Chicago. Um, it is for standby, but if she wants something immediately to come to, to get over to the States on, we can work that out. And so that's what happened. That's what brought me back to the States. Wow. In 08, I, I took standby position in Chicago. And then immediately following that, they offered me the full-time role on the national tour of Wicked. God, it's so incredible. Your career is so amazing to me. We were, we've, we've talked a little bit in the past about you doing Carrie. Um, mm-hmm. You came to New York and you did Carrie off-Broadway. Yes. Um, and now you've just had this like huge success doing Bright Star on Broadway. Tony nominated. The show was Tony nominated. Are you a person who feels like the right thing happens at the right time? Absolutely. Yeah. I believe in that 110%. I mean, good on you if you have that, if you have that kind of ambition that you're like, I need to have this happen this next month. I mean, yes, it does happen sometimes. It's just like I said with the jazz thing and it did happen, but, um, I don't necessarily just stop everything and say, no, it has to be this way because that's not how life goes. Mm -hmm. Not for me, at least. I just try to keep my heart and my head and my soul open to what falls in my path and what I need to step over and what I need to research and, and, and have a look at. And hopefully, you know, I've, well, luckily, yes, I've been very lucky in that certain things that have fallen into my lap have, have, most things that have fallen into my lap have been incredibly rewarding. Yeah. And some other things I might not do, I would never do again. (laughs) (laughs) One, like, last-ish question, but, Mm -hmm. you know, how are you, how are you, um, how how is it to be a part of the Broadway community now? Uh, You know, like... Oh, it's like swimming in a wonderful, warm bath. Um, It's... It's it's very different. It's hard to describe because... It's like family. It's like, but a, a family that of your choosing, in a sense, family that understands what this is about. Because I think probably I speak for a lot of artists in that their their actual family 
some, you know, maybe don't understand why we go into this business. And so there's a real kind of camaraderie and, and almost like a, an unspoken language that we share amongst ourselves. And it's, it's in a hug, and it's in a look, and it's in just singing a duet together or just sharing a scene on stage. And you just feel like they're like you've known them all of your life. Yeah. Do you do you ever see people now that you like, you know, we were just talking about how you got to go to the DNC, you're on this bus with like, you're now a big Broadway star and you're with all these other big Broadway stars. Do you, now that you're like a really established star, do you ever see people that you're just like, ah! are there are there other people that you're just like, oh my God, that's that person? <laughs> yeah. I geeked out only the other day because, oh, hello. <laughs> we're in New York City, everybody. If you just, you just If you're just tuning in. in. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Bloodline, the TV series. Oh yeah. Oh my God, um, Norbert Leo Butts. Yeah. Um, I geeked out on him at the or- in Orlando because he did the he agreed to do the Orlando thing. Oh right. And uh, I think his room was like right next to mine in at the hotel, and he was we just I met him outside, and and was, as we looked at each other, I just thought. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to pass by him. <laughs> but then he stopped and looked at me and said, you're Carmen Cusack. And I literally nearly wet myself. <laughs> uh, something happened moist down in the, in the regions. And I was like, no. <laughs> I kind of geeked out on him, yeah. God, that guy is just absolutely incredible. He's All so right, good. We've monopolized too much of your time, but will you come, Will you be a part of BroadwayCon this year? I hope so. Okay. All right, Carmen Cusack, um, I love you so much. I love you too. Thank you for doing our podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye. Stop. Are you from your nose right at the life on which I strive? But those rules, those laws, say what? Those rules, those laws, again, boys. Keep us alive. So, are you guys familiar with TEDx Broadway? It's basically a day-long seminar where smarty-pants Broadway people, who are also super interesting, present 10-minute-ish speeches around the question, what is the best Broadway can be? A few months ago, I came across Jennifer Ashley Tepper's TEDx talk. She was right in her element. I can't believe I'm standing on the Avenue Q stage. This is so exciting. (laughs) She went on to give this fascinating talk about the Broadway houses and how a theater's size and location affects how long a show is likely to run and which theaters tend to house shows that go on to win the Tony Award. I'm looking at you, Richard Rogers Theater. I just stared at the screen in awe of her brilliance and how easily she was able to convey this super mathy information in a way that even I could understand. Anyway, Jen Tepper, for anyone who doesn't know, is a fabulous young woman who has dedicated basically her entire life to studying Broadway history and sharing her findings with the rest of us. She is the author of The Untold Stories of Broadway's Volumes 1 and 2. Volume 3 is coming in November. And she is also the director of programming at 54 Below. And she is also the coolest theater nerd I've ever met. And I'm crazy about her. Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Hi, Patrick. I'm so happy to chat with you. I love you. Welcome to Broadway on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, tell me about how theater factored into your childhood. Like, when did you discover theater and what did it mean to you to make that discovery? I loved theater from a young age. My family loved theater. No one was ever working in it, but I was taken to touring productions. I got to go to theater camp. 
Um, I went to a high school that was really great for theater. Um, so I had all these experiences growing up where I was in Boca Raton, Florida, but I was obsessed with theater. And so I decided to teach myself as much about it as I could from afar and learn from cast albums and books and, um, you know, going to see a production of a show like the last five years and then like looking up the original production. So it was a lot of um, teaching myself, which I think put the historian cap on me very early. Um, and, you know, like I knew every Broadway theater and the history of it and what had been in it kind of before I even laid foot in New York. So because I was so obsessed with it, but I was so far away, I think it was actually, um, I guess, an, a disadvantage turned into an advantage, maybe is how I would word it. But um, but really, it just like I loved kind of studying Broadway. I just have to say for the zillion year olds like me, the idea that you discovered like a touring production of the last five years and that the original was history. Like I was well into living in New York City and saw that production. Like to me, that feels like yesterday. And to you, that was like what I think of like when Hello Dolly premiered. <laughs> to be fair, it was I think it was the first Florida production and it starred David Josephsburg as Jamie. Um, so it was pretty early. Um, I, and, you know, I just had last five years in the brain because Norbert Leo Butts was just here at 54 Below this morning. So it, it, I've been thinking about last five years all day um so i'm so fascinated about like your your like learning about theater history it seems to me like you're really interested in the history of the actual theaters which is so interesting and fascinating how did that particular piece of it become important to you I think because I was trying so hard to make New York City tangible to me, um, that was one way that I could really make it so um, and learn about it. And I remember like the first Broadway show I ever saw was The Full Monty. And I remember going to the O'Neill and what that looked like and sitting in the front row student rush seats and turning around and seeing like a Broadway audience. But the first Broadway theater that I ever actually saw was like my first night in New York. Like we got, my family got here on a Monday. Um, And I remember walking down 41st Street and just seeing the Nederlander and seeing like the lime green aura and rent on the marquee and all of that. And it just, um, I think just like looking at the theaters themselves made me feel like I was part of it in some way. Like I knew what had gone on in them. It just like, you know, solidified theater for me. Um, So it really like my real love for Uh, It started, though, when I moved here in 2004 to go to school. And then I was like seeing a show in each theater and going like, oh, these shows were here before this. And then working on my first Broadway show, which was title of show at the Lyceum and really like going in depth about the Lyceum. Um, These all kind of started to build on each other. Wow. So tell me a bit about like living in New York and getting to go to see theater. What were your favorites? Who were your favorites? Like what was that experience like for you? Being here in college was just like unimaginably amazing because I really spent four years with the city as my campus. And I remember doing things like going to see High Fidelity like five times in previews because I got rush tickets or there were um, free tickets at NYU or, you know, and studying the changes that they were making and making notes in my playbill of like what was different since the last preview. And I learned as much from that as I did from being in school for sure. Um, Just being part of the community. And the first year that I lived here was that like amazing season of Spelling Bee and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Spamalot and Piazza, um, plus, you know, all these other shows. So just like being so immersed in it, like I did everything I could do to see as much theater as I could. And I learned as much from that as from school. When did you start to realize that you could like write, but like really share the knowledge that you had were gaining? And why was it important for you to do that? I, you know, like the coolest thing about social media to me from day one, um, like I remember, you know, I was, um, I went to NYU like the first year of Facebook when only like 10 schools could have a Facebook. And like from the very beginning, I think the coolest thing about social media for me was like connecting with uh, other theater nerds and like not just social media, I guess, like even like message boards and, um, you know, just 
all kinds of stuff that the internet provided. Um, when I was in Florida, like I loved being able to do that in whatever ways. And as the internet has grown, it's like nothing is more inspiring to me and keeps me going when I'm working on my book than being like, oh my God, I discovered this crazy thing about the Nederlander theater. Um, I'm going to write about it in depth, but I'm also going to like share a little quick fact online and someone online that like I might've never met in Ohio being like, that's so cool. Like, and I know this about the Nederlander, like that's unbelievable to me. Like I love that about internet and social media. Um, so in some weird way, I really do feel like being able to like connect in that way and share stuff I was excited about on the internet kind of stroked like my like passion for writing and for like writing books. I always think that like Lin-Manuel Miranda says something really smart about how, um, you know, the 140 characters on Twitter is like a different muscle in his brain as a writer than what he's, you know, writing a full length musical. And I really think that they do like feed each other in this cool way. So um, part of like, you know, what inspires me and what inspired me to write and really share the history I was finding out was these little moments of that that happened on the internet. Yeah. Let's talk about the theaters. What tell us tell us stuff. What is your favorite what are your favorite theaters? Why? Give us like your favorite history nuggets. Um what's so funny is that like my favorite theaters essentially end up being like whichever ones I'm studying in depth at the moment. Um I really I mean the Winter Garden and that Alvin, now Neil Simon, are both so special to me um, and were for so long. And they were both in my first book. And then after that happened, it was like, you know, writing my second book, I became so obsessed with the theaters in that book. And I really go in depth and like spend time in the theaters and spend so much time researching them and talking to people about them about each one. So the third book of mine that's being published in November has the Schoenfeld in it and formerly the Plymouth. And I've spent so much time like studying every bit of that theater that it's now it feels like one of my favorites. And um, each book has one lost theater in it, like a theater that's been demolished or is no longer a Broadway theater. And the Edison is in this coming um, book. And I'm so obsessed with that history. So it really like each time I get to focus on a new one, it, it becomes kind of my favorite. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, tell us about the Negromander. I will say I, that was not my first Broadway theater, but I was one of the kids that like slept on the sidewalk to see rent in previews before they went to a lottery whenever they did that I actually got rush tickets to see rent in previews so tell us just I pulled it out of my hat but tell us about the Nederlander um, well, I think the most amazing thing about the Nederlander to me is that it almost like we have come so close to not having the Nederlander. Like if Rent hadn't happened, we would not have the Nederlander today because, um, you know, it's the southernmost Broadway theater on 41st Street. It was not as kept up because it wasn't as coveted of a spot and it kind of fell into disrepair. And in the early 90s, like, you know, people were rehearsing Broadway shows there because it was cheaper than a rehearsal studio. Like that's how not in demand the Nederlander wow. was. Yeah, it was kind of... Um, you know, it was just like not, they were looking to sell it. Like the Times Square Church almost bought the Nederlander instead of buying the uh, Mark Hellinger where they now are. It, we, we so easily could have lost the Nederlander and rent could have so easily gone into another house. I learned when I was writing the Nederlander chapter that, you know, they were kind of offered like the Broadhurst and all of these Broadway houses they could have gone into because it was, you know, known that it was probably going to be this big hit. Um, and the very smart producers and people in charge and, you know, Jonathan Larson's folks said, no, we want something that keeps in the spirit of the show where you feel that downtown like grunge, you know, energy. And they picked the Nederlander because they thought that was like, a good fit and you know they they kind of used all the great stuff about how it was grungy and they also added certain elements to the theater and if rent hadn't done that we would definitely not have it today because after that it became this you know people sleeping on the street the whole block started to change because of rent um obviously times square changed during the run of the show and now the nederlander is like an amazing house and newsies was there and there's all of these um you know shows that want to go there so it really changed the theater forever how we gonna play Last year's rain.
Can I ask you about another theater? Yeah. Can we talk about the St. James? <laughs> totally. Because so Tommy is like my favorite, favorite, favorite show of all. Every time I meet, like I got to interview Alice Ripley, and I literally all I could think about was I was sitting across from the nurse from Tommy. Like I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Um, and I never got to see it there, but there have been incredible. I saw it on tour or something. That was like when it became my favorite show. But there have been incredible shows there. But can you tell us about that theater? Yeah. Um, the St. James is also in book three, so I'm really glad you asked. I've been going in depth about the St. James. Um, what's really cool about that theater is that there have just been all of these landmark musicals there. Um, just like it's such an ultimate like musical house that everyone wants, that everything from obviously Oklahoma to the producers and, you know, things like the Who's Tommy and these big like rock shows and these classic Broadway musicals all want to go there because of um, – the way the theater is shaped, like the number of seats, just like this amazing energy that is in that theater. Um, and I was really excited about the St. James because one of my big goals with the book is to go back as far in history as possible, interview like the oldest possible people that I can chat with. And I'm um, really like, you know, most of the Broadway theaters were built pretty much at the turn of the 20th century. And what's crazy is like the first 30 years of the theaters, I can't really tell firsthand because those people have unfortunately left us. And so to start each chapter in the 40s was like my biggest goal. So I tried really her to do that. And the St. James, I managed to talk to so many amazing people that were there in its early wow. years, including even George S. Irving, who's one of the two remaining living cast members of the original Oklahoma, who like got drafted into World War II a week after the show opened. So just these crazy stories that are, are part of history and of another time. Um, I really got like a bunch of St. James 1940s and 50s stories. One more nerdy question, because I, I probably am just never going to leave. I'm just going to ask you a gazillion questions about theater history. Why did the theater district end up where it is? It's a great question. Um, so what's funny about that is it relates to Nederlander too, because um, the theater district has been moving northward um, for a while. I think it's probably going to stay put because we're so permanent feeling right now. But, you know, maybe not forever. Um, but around the time that the Nederlander was built, the theater district was mainly congregated like around the 40s and 34th Street. So it was in the heart of it. And then as it moved northward, it's now the southernmost Broadway theater. But, um, you know, there was a period in the 1800s when the theater district was really clustered around 14th Street and Union Square. Um, and it's really been like as Manhattan has developed upward. Um, and, you know, what's also interesting is that in the early 20th century, a lot of theater builders built new houses um, in the Lincoln Center area because they were like, oh, it's going to keep expanding north. We're going to get ahead of the game. Um, and then it didn't. So then there was like for a number of years, there were a lot of theaters around Columbus Circle and Lincoln Center right, area that like weren't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that they weren't actually like in the heart of it. So, um, you know, it, it, it's been in the same place it is now for quite a number of years. But um, in the beginnings of like what Broadway is today, it was moving upward quite a bit. That is so interesting. I'm so fascinated by you. Um, okay, so what's coming up for you? You have a book coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a book coming out in November. It's the third volume of Untold Stories of Broadway, and we're putting finishing touches on it. I'm really excited for people to read it. Um, we have like a really exciting couple of months coming up here at 54 Below. Um, you know, all kinds of good stuff in the summer and fall that I'm really excited about. Um, and yeah, just like lots of little writing projects and other things and, you know, keeping 54 Below um, going with lots of magic. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Ashley Tepper, you're a dream. Thank you so much. Will you come back and talk to us again? Totally. And I love you. Like, it's so nice to talk to you. I know. No, will you be at BroadwayCon this year? I definitely will. Amazing. Can we be best friends? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, thanks for talking to us. Bye. Bye. <laughs> you feel me coming. A new vibration. From afar you'll see me. BroadwayCon the podcast is a partnership between BroadwayCon Media and Theatre Podcast Productions. 
If you're enjoying our show, please take 30 seconds to review us on iTunes. It really is the best and easiest way to help other people find this brand new show. If you just can't wait till next week's episode to get your theater podcast fix, may I humbly suggest you check out my other podcast. It's called Theater People. It features full-length interviews with Tony winners, Broadway legends, and today's brightest theater stars. You can find it on iTunes or any place else you can find podcasts. As I mentioned at the top of the show, tickets for BroadwayCon 2017 are now on sale. You can find information and tickets at broadwaycon.com. We'll be back in one week with a group of guys who found their way into the Broadway community without necessarily having been in Broadway shows. We'll chat with the Ensemblist podcast's Mo Brady, Tyler Mount, host of the Tyler Mount Vlog, and entrepreneur and creator of Broadway, Matt Roden. Until then, we ask you to remember this. If you get really pissed and will cut someone's slack, when they call the cast album a freaking soundtrack, you're a